2 uh, Corinthians chapter 7 is such a centerpiece of this letter uh, to the Corinthian church. Um, just the real hinge point between part 1 and part 2 of 2 Corinthians. So much for us to learn there, uh, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by. Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, we'll really start to examine, think through the concept of repentance. But before we get there, I want to walk with Paul uh, in the first, in the early verses with the way he is relating emotionally to the church in Corinth. And uh, last week, we really saw this concept of caring for, discipling, prickly people. Uh, I don't know how many of you over the last week began to think of yourself as more of like a cactus or porcupine uh, than a cuddly teddy bear. The reality is most of us are. And so we ended, though, with this idea that Paul had great optimism for the church in Corinth. And that's shocking to us. Um, but he was also deeply encouraged by them. And then I think that as well is pretty shocking to us. And so we're going to be asking why is that and, and how do we work through that. Let me see if we can't get this Prezi up and connected. And I'll just help you as you follow along this morning with some notes. There we go. Hey, awesome. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. I'm going to read from verse 4 down through verse 9. Paul says this, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. In other words, he's speaking very frankly, very directly uh, to the folks. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. This morning we want to understand that you and I, we can wield gospel light against shadows of sorrow and other weary travelers i really thought i'd be able to make it through with the coat this morning that's just not happening so um this traveler would get real weary real fast so uh but we can do this work in one another's lives paul is pointing to this reality uh, of what the how the corinthians have served and blessed him you and i can enter into the life of someone who's discouraged who's struggling in the midst of the shadows and the darkness of this world, and we can help to shove uh, the fog and the mist away. Now, uh, my guess is all of us at some point in our lives have enjoyed some beautiful vistas. We've seen, gone to places. Now, unfortunately, though, uh, there are some travelers, they travel around the world to go see a place, and it's covered in mist and fog. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You think you're going to see something beautiful. You get up in the morning to see the sunrise, and it's so foggy you can't see anything but a dim glow. You think you're going to see the Grand Canyon, and all you see is fog. Uh, when I was in Guatemala, I thought we were going to see some amazing volcano tops, and all we saw was mist and clouds. And you really need something to push those clouds away so you can actually see the beauty that's around you. And I think that this is actually a great picture of the way your life and my life works. Uh, we're going through life 
otherwise happy and pleasant, and things begin to happen. We begin to have experiences of sorrow and struggling and suffering and tears and weeping trials, whether they're physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, uh, and we are just encompassed by this, and suddenly the beauty that should surround us, we can't even seem to see it anymore for all the fog and the darkness that seems to be creeping in. What happens when darkness creeps into life and ruins the beautiful vistas of our lives? What happens when discouragement sets in? What happens when things that were supposed to go right all seem to have taken a left turn and gone wrong? When you and I start to walk into these kinds of foggy places of life, it makes it astoundingly difficult to see the beauty of the life that God has called us into, and in fact, the mission that he has called us all to follow. It really becomes like a mountain pass. God has called me to share the gospel, and he's called me to love him and to love others, and he's called me to serve, and he's called me to use my work for his kingdom advance and for his glory and to delight in the gifts of this world, and suddenly everything seems to taste off, and every work seems to fail, and every relationship seems strained, and every health seems to be turned into sickness. What do we do? It's like we're on this mountain pass and we desperately need to be able to see what's around us and suddenly as the fog settles, it's more like we are in a cave and they shut off the lights and you can't even see your hand in front of your face. I know I've been in those places. Uh, Several years ago, I went away to a conference together for the gospel conference in Louisville and I arrived at that conference in that state. Uh, And I knew I just was in a dark and very difficult place. And lots of things were going on in my life that just made it feel so foggy and I couldn't see. And I'll never forget, before the first session happened, I ran into a guy that I barely knew. He and I had both been in someone's wedding together. And I'm standing there, and, and when you're that broken, like it's just right below the surface. It really doesn't take much scratching, and it all comes oozing out. And he just looked at me and he said, how are you? And I was like uh really bad you know and he looked at me and he said have you ever been to to this conference before and i said no he said well every session is going to start with worship he said you probably are going to want to grab and he reached in his pocket and he had like a handful of tissues he said because you're probably going to be an ugly mess and it's going to be so good for your soul to just sing with other saints Later in that week or that few days, I sat with another friend of mine in a public place in a restaurant, and, and, I, and I knew going in, we needed to talk and work through some things, and, and I just sat there and I wept, and life just felt so dark. And if you were here last week, you already know my personal flesh bent or predisposition is not to be this Mr. Optimistic Happy Guy. I, I delight in finding problems and solving them. I love that. But the problem with that is sometimes you see problems everywhere and you're overwhelmed by that and you have a very difficult time seeing even the small, tiny, good things that God is doing. And even the good things you do see, they seem far too small to push away the darkness. Paul comes to this moment in the letter writing to a church that is by far the most broken church that we see in the New Testament. Friends that have abandoned him and betrayed him and and that are falsely accusing him, and it's been so strained and so difficult, and yet he comes here, and he makes stunning statements at the end of verse 4 that he says he's filled with comfort, and he is overflowing with joy. And when I read those verses, and I know how they've treated him, and I know what they've done, I'm like, Paul, how? Because I want that. And furthermore, Paul's going to make the case 
that God has used Titus, his good friend, and used this very broken Corinthian church to do this good work in his soul of comfort and of joy bringing. You know, we sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, and we are delighted about Christ coming and bringing comfort and joy. And Paul here says, the work God has done in you brings me comfort and joy. And I just want to say at the start of the sermon, I think that's really helpful. Because it can be very intimidating for you and I to consider that that's the work that God wants to use us to do in other people's lives. Uh, we feel very inadequate. We see people that are suffering uh, and struggling in various ways, and they're overwhelmed by the fog and the darkness and the shadows of life. Uh, and we know that we're weak. We know that we can't heal their disease. We know that the words that we say will not fully take away the darkness. We are, in fact, are convinced of our own inadequacies and how we're broken vessels. And, and so God can't really mean that he wants to use me in someone's life this way. How in the world can I help carry their burden, Galatians 6, when I don't seem to do such a hot job carrying my own burden? And so let me give you some hope here. God used Titus and he used the Corinthians. Yes, the Corinthians to give comfort and joy. The church that had hurt him the most, he used to bring him comfort and joy. The church that had abandoned him. The church that had rejected him most severely. The church that had run him out of town themselves in a very, very ugly business meeting. In other words, folks that we would be more inclined to think of as enemies than as friends, God has somehow now used to bring comfort and joy. And I just want to tell you, if God could use Balaam's donkey to speak truth to a prophet, if he could use a boy to kill a giant in a valley... If he could use a fisherman to lead the church and he could use a persecutor of the church to found the church, then I just want to tell you, he can use you and I to wield gospel light against shadows of sorrow and other weary travelers. And I think to understand it, we need to first grasp what Paul's talking about when he talks about this affliction. Again, in verse 4, he says it this way, I'm acting with great boldness toward you, and I have great pride in you. We talked about that last week. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. He means I'm journeying in affliction. I'm experiencing affliction right now, but he's been filled with comfort in the midst of this journey of affliction. I'm overflowing with joy in the midst of this affliction. Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. And then he points outside and inside, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast gives us another image of how he's feeling downcast, discouraged. We might even use the word depressed. God comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And so how do we, how do we understand this? Let's first talk about Paul's darkness these shadows of Paul's affliction. He doesn't hide the difficulty that he's facing. I think that's an important truth. I'm not going to park on that. That's an important point. You will always run into problems when you try to hide the affliction you're experiencing from others. You need to run into and push into relationships and into truth spaces to receive comfort. If you hide your comfort and you buy into the lies, maybe you're, maybe you're bent this way, and, and you buy into lies, well, if they really loved me, then they would know that I'm suffering. I, I, you know, here's, here's some profound biblical counsel for you. You ready? Stop it. Right? I mean, that just helped right there, right? I mean, it's just amazing. Why, amen. Let's be done. Now, 
look, I know it's hard. I know it leaves you vulnerable. I know you're already hurting. I know the last thing you want to do when you feel like you've got a raw nerve is expose it. I know that, but you will never experience the truths of this passage as long as you are unwilling to be open and honest with the struggles you're experiencing. You are robbing yourself of the ministry God intends to do in your life. You don't have to hide. Um, and, and those of you that have been here, particularly those that are members, you know the reality is we are passionate about an atmosphere here at this church where you can be open and honest and transparent and not experience judgment or scorn or rejection, right? Because we're all broken people. And so, and so to experience this, you've got to be open. Paul is open and honest about this affliction. But what does he mean? And it's interesting, he says he's in the midst of affliction, and he tells us in his Macedonia. Paul doesn't give us all the specifics of exactly what he's experiencing right now, but he's given us a number of clues about what it might be going on. And the clues that we get here are what his previous experience was like in Macedonia, and other afflictions or anxieties he's talked about. And so you might remember from earlier in the book, he kind of gave this, this list in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul has experienced much persecution He's experienced the rejection of the Corinthians, but also specifically even while he's in Macedonia. In Acts 17 and 18, it tells us of his journey into Macedonia. And when he went into Macedonia before, uh, he experienced imprisonment. He was beaten with rods. You might remember the, the Philippian jailer incident where they come and they arrest him. It says they beat him severely with sticks, with rods. Uh, and then threw him into prison, shackled him up and threw him into prison. That's what it was like before Macedonia. They ran him out of town. He goes to the next town, Thessalonica. You might remember that. The, Thessal the Thessalonian church was the most persecuted church in the New Testament. They took their homes. They killed their businesses. They martyred them. They imprisoned them. They ran them out of town, sold some of the believers into slavery. And so that's all in Macedonia. And so when Paul was tracking through at one point in one of the Macedonian towns, they couldn't find Paul. Right? They couldn't put their hands on Paul, so they do the next best thing, and they grab a brand new baby Christian that had just gotten saved under Paul's ministry, and they beat him and imprisoned him. Can you imagine? Uh, it's, it's one thing when you suffer. Can you imagine someone going after one of your kids to hurt you? Like, I'm going to go after, I can't get to you, so I'm after your kid to cause you pain. That's really what they're doing. And so all that happens in Macedonia. Paul has now gone back to Macedonia. And so there's every reason to believe he's experiencing the same kind of persecution and affliction. When he writes letters back to the church in Thessalonica and First and Second Thessalonians, he points to their endurance, their experience of violence that they're, that they're going through, all for the cause of Christ. All this is happening in Macedonia. He indicates that there is some physical degree of it. He says that it's fightings without. He says our bodies had no rest. And so what is Paul experiencing? Sleeplessness, for sure. Probably physical violence, once again, against him. Certainly the fears of more physical violence. If you've ever been beaten by, with a group, a mob, with sticks, you've got to wonder, is that going to happen again? I don't know how you go into that without a degree of anxiety. He says that it's fightings without fears within, so emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. Fears about Titus being safe, making it to him. Fears of rejection, fears of lack of fruit in the lives of the Corinthians and others that he's trying to minister to. 
anxiety over the work of Satan and the enemy in the life of the church and the lives of believers. Now, I don't want to minimize the physical suffering, but studies have shown us that he, uh, if you take someone and they experience, for example, physical abuse, the scars of verbal and emotional abuse are far deeper and far longer lasting. More difficult to recover from. When you and I are suffering emotionally, mentally, people can't see it. And so there's a greater tendency to dismiss it. There's a greater propensity, particularly in our culture, to just say, buck up, be a man, get stronger, you can get through this. And so emotional hurts, spiritual hurts, mental suffering, bring their own unique form of suffering. Now, I don't mean that to diminish physical suffering, because frequently prolonged physical suffering will quickly be accompanied by emotional, spiritual, and mental suffering. So you get the whole package then. And Paul says this is all the kind of stuff that he is experiencing. When we deal with people that are hurting physically, it's not thinking evil of them to perceive that there's a great possibility that the presence of darkness and the fog in their lives is there emotionally and spiritually as well. All too often, someone will go through a deep physical trial, and then if God heals them, they come out the other side. They still are left with the emotional scars that they're wrestling with. And we don't always do a good job, and by that I mean the church as a whole, ministering grace to those that are suffering emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. We move on, and we think the healing has been total, and maybe they need still more grace and help and comfort. And so that's Paul's darkness. Uh, But when we talk about Paul's darkness, we see so much of it is linked to ministry itself. Uh, He's experiencing nakedness and deprivation and abandonment, my friends, in large part because he's following Jesus. In large part because he's going and preaching the gospel. And you and I might be prone then in this moment to think, well, this text then only applies if that's what's going on. But Paul helps us to press away from that. Because there can be a present darkness that we can experience. And the truths of how you and I receive comfort and how you and I give comfort to others transcend the cause of the sorrow. They move beyond what the why of a person's hurt and they just go after the reality that they are hurting. The empathy that's called for is not based upon the reason that they are suffering. And so when Paul works through this, he actually alludes to uh, Isaiah, and he alludes to Job, and he alludes to Hebrews. And and when he talks about being downcast and comforted, he comforts us. Uh, He told us of your longing. He, he, He starts to point to all these realities of the suffering can be beyond and in any occasion. In fact, in Hebrews 12, when he talks about some of the ministry, the author of Hebrews, he uses stunningly similar language to what Paul's using here. In Hebrews 12, we're called to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees, make straight paths for our feet, so that what is lame may be put, not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In Hebrews, what's happening is a believer is going through life and they start to experience the, 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 what the Bible calls the discipline and the chastening of God. We all discipline. If you have children and you love them, you discipline them. Uh, we all should be seeking as degrees of self-discipline, self-control, right? And th- those are things as simple as your alarm clock, uh, working hard, doing your homework, uh, d- discipline. 
Chastening is what happens when we don't do those things. We start to suffer consequences of sinful decisions. And what Hebrews 12 is telling us is that as children of God, he loves us as a good father loves his own children, and he will discipline us, and he will chasten us. And the result is then sometimes as Christians, we get discouraged by that. And we start to believe lies about that. And we start to think that God must not love me. He must not care for me. Any of us that have been around for any length of time, we've seen the child let go with no discipline and no chastening. We know, we know that's terrible parenting that doesn't love the child. We know that. But if you were to suddenly bring discipline and chastening into that child's life, that child at least temporarily is going to really struggle. How do you love me? You've never disciplined me like this before. You've never chastened me like this before. You must not love me. And so in Hebrews 12, as a Christian, we're going through life, we start experiencing discipline and chastening of God, and we can get discouraged. And so he tells them to know, this is, start preaching to your own heart. Don't listen to your heart. Preach to your heart and preach truths like this. Lift up your drooping hands. That's kind of somebody moping around, right? Strengthen your weak knees. You've seen, you just finished the Olympics. I'm sure you saw guys doing races. It doesn't even seem like they can barely finish. He's saying the Christian life is a marathon. Keep running. Make straight paths for your feet. So his lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Now, what's fascinating is in Hebrews 12, that sounds a lot like you're preaching that to your own heart, but he's quoting Isaiah and Job. And in Isaiah and Job, those are not ministries you do to yourself. Those are ministries of others to you. And so in Isaiah, it points to the good work of the Messiah. And he tells us to not be discouraged because the Messiah is coming. And Job, one of Job's friends, is telling Job, this is the kind of friend you are to others. And Job was the most righteous man on the planet at the time. In other words, it doesn't matter what your present darkness is. The truth of receiving comfort and the means that God uses to push away the fog are the same. Whether it's the result of sin in your life, whether it's a result of a lack of sanctification, Hebrews 12, whether it's a result of, in God's sovereignty, you are going through a season of physical suffering, Job. Whether it's a result of the sins of others against you and around you, Isaiah. The truth remains, God has promised and he intends to bring comfort and joy into the lives of believers. And he intends to do that, hear me now, through other people. Now, if we think about that, on one hand, we start to realize that we must be like Paul and be open and honest when we're struggling, build relationships so that we might receive. But we also must think of it this way. You and I carry a heavy responsibility for that ministry in the lives of others. And so Paul, in the midst of his affliction, is going to experience this. Now, suffering and sin, let's just continue to press and understand the struggles. All suffering on this planet is the result of sin. All suffering. Now let me be clear. What I don't mean by that is you're sick right now because you sinned somehow. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when God puts Adam and Eve there, there is no sin. There is no death. There is no sorrow. There is no suffering. The only tears that would have been shed in the garden were tears of joy. But then sin enters the universe through Satan, and sin enters the world through Adam. And when sin comes, consequences come with it, including death and sorrow, suffering. 
immediately the consequences start to be brought forth. God told, told them ahead of time, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. He means they're going to die spiritually. Ultimately, they will die physically as well. He brings consequences to bear. And so, so now the thing that should be the greatest delight in life, bringing forth new life for a woman, is now tainted with intense sorrow and suffering and pain and agony. A man and a woman were created to work and to keep in the garden. Both of them were intended to be stewards of life. And now he says all work will be tainted with blood, thorns, thistles, and trials. Yeah, you know what? If at all possible, you should try to find a job that you love doing and do that. But just be aware, there's not a job that exists without thorns and thistles and suffering. All suffering is the result of sin in this planet. The reason God can wipe away every tear from every eye when we get into heaven is because sin will be stripped completely from the planet at that point. With all sin comes suffering, and all suffering finds its roots in sin. Sin does this for everyone. In fact, the way we respond to sin and suffering is interesting from Adam and Eve because when we sin and we suffer we start to experience shame and when we experience shame we act just like Adam and Eve acted we we've done something or something's been done to us or we've just experienced some kind of suffering and we then hide and Adam and Eve hide in a number of ways when they realize that they're sinners they hide they're suffering and they're hiding Uh, and so they hide by making some fig leaves in other words they try to pretend that they actually are clothed when now they've been revealed to be naked. They've been exposed, but they say, I can cover it up, and they can't. And then they try to hide from God's presence. They run from the presence of God. They think, now I can hide this in my shame and in my suffering. I can flee from God's presence. That doesn't work. God comes, and he lovingly pursues even those that are in sin and are suffering from their shame. He calls them out. He asks them questions. He knew the answers, but he's exposing their heart through questions. Accusations prick the or accusations harden the will. Questions prick the conscience. Be good question askers of others. God asks them questions, and then they try to hide it by blaming everybody else. Right? It's the serpent's fault. It's Eve's fault. Really, it's your fault, God. And in this condition and in this moment, I want you to, it's so desperately important that you understand this. When you and I are in the fog of life as Christians, it's like we've gone back to who we originally were. Sinners. Suddenly, God, it's like God's word is exposing how weak we are, how overwhelmed we are by the darkness that surrounds us. When a person begins to realize the truth that the Bible says about who they are, it's exposing when the Bible begins to say, if you've sinned in any way, you've broken all the law, uh, that everyone is a sinner, that no person is righteous before God, that, that, that sin has consequences and the consequence is death and hell, you begin to realize that even as a Christian, when you and I are going through seasons of suffering and sorrow, it's a gospel moment. It is a living illustration of what a person is like when they realize that they're lost. And get this, the tendency of lost people when their sin is exposed and it's revealed who they really are is to do what? It's to hide. And guess what your tendency and my tendency is when you and I start suffering? It's to hide. It's to isolate. It's to shy away and become convinced we're the only one on the side of that mountain 
cloaked in darkness, not knowing how to take the next step. And so that sets the stage, this atmosphere of affliction. But thankfully, Paul begins to point our hearts to a ministry of care. And the truth is that we can come into someone's life and we can wield gospel light against those shadows of sorrow. We can do that in the lives of other weary travelers. He really does it in two words. All the ministry that happens here, and we want to make this as simple and as applicable as possible, it forms down in two words, presence and power. Presence, not Christmas presents, presence and power. And so we can see it in verses 6 through 9 as Paul begins to unpack how it is he's been comforted and the joy he's experienced. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, even though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. It's interesting here because Paul differentiates in verse 6 between the presence of Titus coming and the news that Titus brought. The sheer fact that his friend showed up brought comfort and joy. Regardless of what Titus was going to tell him the Corinthians did, regardless of the effect of the severe letter he sent back rebuking the church, regardless of any of that, the fact that Titus was there brought him tremendous comfort. In the past few months, our family has heard from friends near and far. Several of my wife's closest friends from her childhood traveled hours, each of them making the intentional effort to travel hours and set up time just to come and to be with her. When we had to tell our children In February of my wife's diagnosis, Darren and Nicolette brought our children to our home and they sat with us as close, trusted friends as we unpacked this reality with our family. There is a power in the presence of others. We frequently resist this reality. We are prone to think that you and I are of no use because we can't fix this person's pain or take away their hurt. We, are, we tend to focus on the fact that we don't know what to say to someone who's in the midst of fog and darkness. And I just want to say this um, pointedly enough to get your attention, but gently enough so as not to overwhelm you with discouragement. And so I'll couch it in personal pronouns, right? When I am too afraid because I don't know what to say, and when I am too concerned because I can't fix it, so that I don't go into the presence of someone who's hurting. What I've revealed is the only one I love is me. I'm going to tell you something. Nobody thinks you have all the answers. They don't. Nobody thinks that you'll be able to snap your fingers and take away their cancer or dementia, or neuropathy, or inability to walk, or inability to think straight, or to work like you used to, or to fix the scars, 
or your hearing, their sight, or their speech. When we won't pursue in love to push into the presence of the hurting, the one we're loving is not them, but us. Titus comes. Titus finishes his mission, and he makes his way to Macedonia. Titus knew what Macedonia was like. Titus knew what that mountain was like. He knew what those cities were like. But his friend was there, and he was going to come to him. And it didn't matter the hurdles and obstacles in the way. He would find a way to be there with him. There's friends that I haven't spoken to in years. <laughs> One guy, I, I was in his wedding. He's a pastor in Ohio now, and he was contacting me, offering to come, to preach, to do whatever. He doesn't understand where our church is. He doesn't know the gifts God's brought in our body. He's like, Steve, I'll just come. Just, maybe I'll come. I had another friend ca- call me, and he said, Steve, I'll take off work, and I'll just come that weekend. I, if you need me to go pick up food or just drive your kids or do whatever, I'll just come. They want to just come and be in the presence. And I'll be honest with you, even though those even specific offers don't minister because God's using others to minister to us that way, the sheer offer and attempt and planning speaks love and compassion and this is what it says i will not leave you alone on your mountain i will come into your presence we need to press into it someone sometimes people won't ask us to frequently they won't because of the shame and the pain that they're experiencing we know our own shame when we suffer We sense the shame of others through their feelings of isolation as they seem to pull back, whether physically or even emotionally, from us. But there's two very powerful truths that we need to understand about presence. Two incredibly deep and important theological truths. And so first of all, we need to understand that when we go into the presence of the suffering, we go as image bearers. We go as image bearers. Now, image bearing is an astonishing thing in the Bible. We are created as God's image bearers. In Genesis, we're told this. Um, Later, Jesus has this amazing interaction where they say, should we pay taxes? Jesus takes this coin. He says, whose image is on the coin? They say Caesar's. So he says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. You know what he's saying? The coin bears Caesar's image. You bear God's image. When kings want to display their power, they put their image everywhere. The reason kings started putting their image on coins was because it now touches every area of your life. And guess what it is? It's a declaration of authority. It's, I own this. Like, it's your coin, but it's my coin. You don't have this coin without me as the king. They would build statues of the king in every city in the distance. They would put up images of them. They would put up frescoes of them, friezes of them. They would, they would, they would put it up everywhere. We even do this in our modern day. When there's a presidential change, they go and they take down one president's photo out of government buildings. They put up the new president's. Then you walk in the building, and that's what you see. Why? It's a declaration that the work that's done here is under the authority of that one. So when... We bear God's image. I really want you to understand this. When God created humanity in his image, while God is omnipresent, he's everywhere equally all at the same time. He's not like a mist or a fog, but God, we are in his presence right now. He wanted to declare, to show, that's what that word means, to show his presence on every square inch of this globe. 
And the way he decided to do it was to make a bunch of little image bearers. Do you know why God is going to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Because he wants to declare his image no matter the ethnicity, no matter the culture, no matter the language, no matter where you're at on the planet, I'm going to declare this is mine. So, when we understand image bearing, we begin to understand the truth that when we go into the presence of someone who's suffering, we are to go bearing God's image. We become a visible manifestation of this promise. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Now, God does that profoundly through the Holy Spirit, who is the paraclete, the comforter. That's the Greek word is the paraclete. It's one who walks beside you. God does that. There's so much ministry of the Spirit of God, it's, it's literally indescribable to unpack the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit to empower us, to encourage us, to give us spiritual gifts, to fill us with hope in the midst of discouragement, to open our eyes and illuminate the text so we understand. Right now, if you're understanding the words coming from me, it's because of the Spirit working in you. Like, this is actually a very mystical moment when we preach. This is not the same as you go and listen to some lecture somewhere. This is actually a spiritual moment where the Holy Spirit has worked. But the Holy Spirit also, guess what, indwells every believer. And when God intends to fulfill this promise that I draw near to the brokenhearted, I'm near to the Christian spirit, he also intends to do that, get this, through the image-bearing believer. Through your presence. You go to be with them. You put your arms around them. You hold their hand. You stroke their head. You comfort them. You're physically there for them. You're in the presence of them, and you're declaring the presence of God to them. Then, then yes, unfortunately, take it this way. When you resist to go into the presence of the suffering so as to bring care to them, you withhold from them the very presence of God intended to comfort them. Now, that's just shameful. You wouldn't be ashamed. That, that's convicting. Doesn't Jesus unpack that when he says, did you visit those in prison? Did you visit the sick? Did you give a, if you gave a cup of cold water in my name, you did it as unto who? As unto me. Dare we resist the care and not going into the presence of others as image barriers? There are some unique spots in the Bible. I, I was joking with my nephew about this uh, maybe a week or so ago, uh, they, in their house, they've started having problems with birds building nests in that little angle of the downspout of their house, right? And then that's a problem. They love birds. They don't want to kill the birds or mess with the birds, but it's a problem because then birds do what birds do, right? So there's bird poop everywhere, and then there's eggshells everywhere, and they're squawking all the time. And so what they did was they took these foam footballs and shoved them up into these corner things to keep the birds from building the nest. Well, one of the birds, uh, somehow the football shifted, and so there's a bird's nest up there. And so we were just joking because my nephew, he's one of those guys, he doesn't want to hurt an animal. That is not in him. And so his mother, we were teasing him. His mother was joking about him, putting a ladder up, climbing up to move the bird's nest. And I just joked, his name's Adam. I said, well, Adam, I will tell you this. God said that God has his eye on every sparrow. So you knew that God is definitely looking at you if you're messing with the nest. And we just laughed. He goes, now I'm definitely not touching this nest. Now just hear me right. 
I know that God's presence is with me all the time. I know that. I know that his indwelling presence in the Spirit is with me. I know that. I also now understand that a particular encouraging truth is that in the seasons of sorrow and suffering, when I sat at that conference at T4G, in that moment, I know it was my friend, but he was declaring by image bearing, God is really, really, really with you right now. And if you've ever hurt and you've ever suffered, you know that's that, that, that is what people need to know and hear. Not snapping the fingers, fingers and curing their pain and not having every right answer. And so we need to understand presence is image bearing. Secondarily, we need to understand the relational connection of believers. There is a unique power of a believer going and being with someone. Listen, listen lost people can, you know, they, they are image bearers. Uh, lost people can go and spend time with someone and bring comfort just by their presence, and they do it all the time. Even in warped image brain, it happens all the time. In fact, to our shame, many times lost people do a better job pushing into people's suffering than believers do. It, and I think sometimes because they know that they don't have any answers and nobody expects them to have answers. And so there is that ministry, but there's a unique ministry when it's another believer who comes and brings presence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, his father was a psychiatrist. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Lutheran theologian, World War II, was ultimately killed for being part of a plan to overthrow Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer's father, he grew up in a home where his father was committed from his life to help the hurting, particularly the mental and emotional, the anguished. But Bonhoeffer wrote this about care ministry. He said this, quote, the most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. There should be no safer place for the suffering believer than in the presence of believing friends. Do you know what believing friends do? They understand our heart what we might wrestle with and our doubts and fears in the midst of the fog and the darkness of life. They know what truths we need to be reminded of. They know what we need to hear. Now, a practical word here. A practical word. You will not know every hurt, but it is seek, thinking evil to see, but it is not thinking evil to think that a person may struggle with guilt. When you see someone suffering, it's not thinking evil to see them suffering and wonder, I wonder if they're struggling with guilt. Let's we'll just ask it this way. How many of you have ever suffered a believer as a believer and one of the things you've wrestled with is did I do something? Is this chastening? Did I do, did I do something to make God mad? And so this is part of his judgment. Yeah. It's not thinking evil to speak into that part of their life because that's one of the things believers will struggle with. It's not thinking evil to wonder if a suffering person will wrestle with God's love. It's not thinking evil to perceive that someone's sufferer may struggle with self-medication, whether it's through drugs and alcohol, entertainment, other vices, pleasures. 
or work. It's not thinking evil to perceive that someone struggling may suffer with doubts. Well, what do you say then? Here's a practical word for you. What do I, what do I say? Like, Steve, I'm afraid to go because I don't know what to say. Take a page from the Navy SEALs. You're like, what? Navy SEALs can teach me about comfort? I know, it's amazing. When the Navy SEALs go into a firefight, they typically are a much smaller team. We'll say there's eight guys. They go into a place, and they're overwhelmed by enemy numbers. And the Navy SEALs have a strategy, and it's overwhelming firepower. If they start experiencing, if they make contact with the enemy, they don't, they don't worry in that moment about running out of ammo. They go full auto. Each of them picks a zone, and it's typically aligned with a clock. So this guy knows, I'm on the far right, I've got three to four. And he is literally spraying full auto. They know, and they do this when they're overwhelmed by the enemy. And every guy's doing it. He's not worrying about what's going from 12 to 2. He's trusting his teammate. He is literally nailing. Rounds are going, and what it does is it silences the enemy. They all hit the dirt. That gives them the moment to pause and to put in some tactical things of whether they're going to flank the enemy, whether they're going to retreat, whatever they're going to do. They go with overwhelming firepower. Here's something I've learned practically. I'm just, I'm just telling you practically, when you enter into the life of someone that's suffering or hurting, start spraying. You don't know where their struggle is. So it's not uncommon that I'll say, now, I don't know, and I'm not judging you, you might be struggling with guilt here. Let me remind you of Romans 5. There is no suffering that has come upon you that is the judgment of God. Because he tells us all that judgment was poured on Jesus at the cross. I don't know if you're struggling. I just want to remind you of that truth. You might be struggling. I'm not judging you. I don't know. You might be wondering, is God with me? I just want to remind you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said it's actually better for him to go away so he could send his spirit to you. Now listen, I don't know if you're struggling with the reality that you're wondering, how is this actually all going to work out? Let me remind you of Romans 8 here for a minute. Let me take you some Romans 8 uh, good truths here that God is working this for his glory and for his kingdom's sake. You might be thinking, I'm so debilitated, what ministry can I have? Let me just take you to the truth that Jesus said, even if you give a cup of cold water. Can you give a cup of cold water to somebody this week? Give them a cup of cold water. Jesus says, I'm going to pour out some blessings on you when you get to heaven. You might be wondering, does Jesus really accept me? Because look at how broken I am now and how much I'm suffering. And I've got mental anguish, emotional anguish, spiritual anguish. I just want to remind you, because Jesus saved you, one day he's going to say, enter in, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I will literally talk for 10 minutes straight, thinking of every possible truth their heart may hear. And I don't even know if I'm hitting the enemy or not. I'm just spraying. And the first time I did that, a number of years ago, I get to the end and I'm like embarrassed. Because I'm wondering, man, are they going to feel like I just didn't even get who they were? Are they going to wonder if I missed it? And that person said to me what nearly every other person has said to me since then. Three words. Tell me more. Even if it wasn't what they were struggling with in that moment, they just needed to be reminded of truth and hope in Jesus. When you go into the presence of someone, you're going bearing the image of God. You're going to a brother and sister in Christ. This is Jesus on display. When Jesus enters into the life of a lost person who's captured in their darkness, God presses in and he chases them like the woman at the well or like, or like Zacchaeus or like God with Adam and Eve, and he chases into their darkness, and he brings truth and hope with him. And so it's presence, but then it's power. 
And we see it in verses 7 through 9. So Titus just showed up, but now Titus is going to tell him some stuff that's going to show the power of God, not only by his coming, but also the com- by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. In other words, they received Titus well, and that comforted Titus. Titus was a little nervous, and that comforted Paul. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. The problem was they were refusing to obey God, specifically in a realm of church discipline. And Paul wrote, went to them, and they ran him out in an ugly business meeting. So Paul wrote to them, it's called a painful visit. He writes to them a severe letter, sends it with Titus to take it to them. And Paul has great hope, great optimism that he'll see some change in growth. We didn't know for sure. And so Paul is encouraged because what he's citing here is how they've responded. Their zeal for him, so they rejoiced still more. For even if it made you grieve, that severe letter, that made them very sad. And Paul didn't want to make them sad. That's what the language here is saying. Um, I don't regret it. And the reason he doesn't regret it is because it worked. <laughs> and there was fruit from it. Although I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you. He didn't want to make them sad, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. The Corinthians were an encouragement to Paul from a great distance. Titus comes near. The whole Corinthian church can't travel to see him. Uh, You can't always go to be with a suffering friend. And so even from a distance, though, Paul is encouraged by the Corinthians' reception of Titus, by the sorrow over their own sin, their zeal to make things right. All of that encourages sorrow with joy. Why? Because during seasons of darkness, we need to be reminded of God's power. Remember Paul was optimistic over even just little growths in the lives of the Corinthians? We need to be reminded in the season of the mountain of shadow that God is still on the move and he's at work. You know, suffering has a unique way of teaching you and revealing you have no power. That's part of the shame of it all. You can't fix it. An amputee can't snap their fingers and grow a limb back. They can't fix it. They can't go back and take a conversation back that left them emotionally fraught, mentally anguished. They can't fix it. They can't go in and change their diagnosis. They can't fix it. And the fact is, when you're suffering, you know the truth is no one else can really fix it either. We know the one you need to fix it is God. We know that God can, but then it seems like he doesn't always really fix it. We need our hearts inflamed with trust in God. We need to be encouraged by the power of God. And how does that happen? By hearing of and seeing God's power on display. If not in a way that I can perceive in my suffering, definitely in a way that I can see in someone else's life. Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, who suffers with quadriplegia as a result of a unwise dive in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, years, years and years later, has an amazing ministry of um, art and of a radio show and speaking. A few years ago, my, my wife and my children actually gave me a print of one of her very first art pieces that hangs on my office of a shepherd. Her trust is severe, it's intense and remarkable, and yet Johnny is very honest about her own discouragements in the midst of her suffering. 
She wrote a blog post some time ago where she said in the midst of her own discouragement, she was encouraged by this quote from John Piper. Every moment God is doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. We need to be reacquainted with the power of God. Fill your social feeds with testimonies of God's power, friends. Fill your conversations with testimonies of even little answers to prayer. In fact, that shouldn't shame you. Uh, you, you think, I need something big. Jesus said when you're doubting God's love, think about the fact he clothes flowers, he counts hairs on your head, and he knows every bird that falls. In other words, in other words what he's saying is look to the magnanimous love of God toward the little things. He surely loves you in the big things. Discouraged, struggling, suffering people need to hear of God's power on the move. Ultimately, these are gospel moments then when we're talking about the presence and declaring it and we're talking about the power of God. Maybe I can show it to you this way. Sin ultimately leads us to isolation. When it's revealed who we really are, we know the truth of what the Bible says. All sinners are actually separate from God. We are his enemies. That's hard to perceive because he's so gracious. We have what we call common grace, and we live and we breathe and we walk and we function and we experience his generosity. But be sure there's a day coming when it would be revealed that in our sin we are separate from him. That's why hell is separation from God for eternity. In our sorrow, we tend to suffer and isolate and pull back. And so even when the believer is suffering, it's like a living illustration, a reminder of what it's like when someone journeys in the gospel. And what we need when we're in our sin is for Jesus to enter in, and he does. What we need in the midst of our suffering is other people to enter in and image Christ to us and remind us of that. It presses on, though. God does a rescuing work for the sinner. He calls them to himself. He opens their eyes to the reality of their spiritual condition, and he says, I have lived a perfect life. I've died a sinless death, and I've died and suffered for your sin to pay for your sin. Turn from your sin and follow me. And he rescues, and when he rescues, the person responds in belief and repentance from sin. When someone is suffering as a believer and, and another person enters into their life and they begin to image Christ to them, the person begins to be filled with comfort and joy by God's power. This is what happens with Paul. And ultimately walks in faith toward a better day. Now a person is saved. Now a believer is encouraged. When Paul talks about this comfort in verses 4 and 6, I'm filled with comfort. God who comforts the downcast. He's quoting, I told you earlier, he's referencing Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 13. And this is what the passage says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. It's really, really important because in that moment, we understand it's not actually Titus and the Corinthians doing it. Paul sees this as God's ministry to him through them. Paul reaches to the past and believes the promises of comfort from Isaiah. And by faith, he experiences the fulfillment of those promises 
through the ministry of others. What does that call you and I to do? It calls us to walk by faith toward a better day. The God of yesterday with all of his promises is the God of today who is fulfilling them in your darkness and through you into the darkness of others. And it's the same God of tomorrow of a day with no darkness at all. The Lord of the Rings, which I would have a healthy debate with you, is actually about Samwise. They come to the Mountain of Shadows. They're in Mordor. Frodo has the ring. He wants to destroy the ring to rid the world of evil. And they're exhausted and they're hungry. You might remember hobbits eat like eight times a day. They haven't eaten. They're exhausted, scratched, dirty, filthy, unwashed, emotionally strained, distanced from their friends. Frodo falls asleep exhausted on the Mountain of Shadow. They're cloaked in darkness. And Samwise looks up while Frodo is sleeping. And Samwise sees a light, a star in the distance. And Samwise is reminded that there will come a better day and there will be a day of light breaking. And it's as though Tolkien writes that Samwise's hunger pains go away and he falls into a restless, into a restful, consuming sleep. And as they go to press forward, Frodo, who's still in the midst of the darkness, Samwise, who has now set his hope on a better day, Samwise says this to Frodo. He says, oh, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry your ring. You can't carry the loss, the diagnosis, the relational distance, the suffering. You can't carry the trial someone else is carrying. And he says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry your ring, but I can carry you. And what Paul has said is, in my anxiety, and in my sadness, in my discouragement, God sent the presence and reminded me of his power so that I could press on in comfort and joy. Friends, the truth is we can wield gospel light against shadows of sorrow and other weary travels. Will you commit to and will you fulfill that ministry? Father, we are so profoundly grateful that you never leave us or forsake us, and we are profoundly grateful that you choose to even do that through others. Thank you first and foremost for the Spirit. But we also thank you for this means of comfort that you do through others. Lord, thank you that this is a church bent toward comfort. Lord, may hearts be encouraged this morning to see how you're on the move in them and through them and toward them. And Father, would you convict, Father, and, and the last thing we want is more sorrow for the sorrowing. But Father, so would your spirit do this, the kindest work of conviction of those that are, are prone to isolate and instead remind them that this is a means you've designed to use in their lives. And Father, we also pray for those this morning who the ultimate sorrow that, that you may be awakening them to today is the fact that they're lost. And they really are isolated and separate. But Jesus comes. 
And may they come to know you, trust you, and be saved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.